I want to ask you a personal question. Do you read my newsletter, Leadership Forward 321? Because if you don't, I really think you'd like it if you like this podcast. Every Wednesday morning, I send a short newsletter designed to help you lead your organization more strategically and with less overwhelm in five minutes or less. The newsletters are organized around a timely leadership theme and give you something practical that you can apply right away in your organization. I include three of the best articles that I've come across on that theme, two concrete resources or tools that I believe in, and one quote to inspire and motivate you. So if you don't yet get the newsletter, I'm going to make it super easy for you to sign up. Just text the word IMPACT to 66866 and you'll be added to my list. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind podcast. Each week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage. Thank you for joining me. Before I dive in, I'm excited to share that I'm accepting new applications for my Impact Accelerator program. The program helps six-figure organizations massively scale their impact. As the leader of a growing organization, it's so often that you look around and see that you have the right pieces. You have a small but mighty staff, a board you might describe the same way, programs that are really working, and revenue that is coming in, but maybe it's a little lumpy or inconsistent. Well, the pieces are there, but you need to know how to put them together in the right way to scale without constantly feeling like you're going to burn out or run out of money. When you close your eyes, you can picture the kind of deep impact that you know you can have. But you're past the one-on-one trainings and the workshops, and you just need to know how to build the right staff, the right board, the next level funding, and the right systems to put your foot on the gas and grow to the impact that you see in your vision. That's what we do in the Impact Accelerator. The program provides a concrete growth plan, as well as the coaching, training, and support to execute, like major donor pitch practice and masterclasses with sector experts. The goal is to take your organization to the next level of revenue and impact. So if you're the leader of a six-figure organization that's ready to massively scale your impact in the new year, you can apply to see if we're a good fit to work together at richiebabbage.com backslash scale to impact now. In today's episode, I have the absolute delight of talking with Jennifer Ching. She's the executive director of the North Star Fund here in New York City. North Star is a social justice fund that supports grassroots organizing led by communities of color, building power in New York City and the Hudson Valley. It's an incredible foundation and one that I've had the genuine pleasure of working closely with for more than a decade. First as a grantee, and then in many ways as a partner. I was excited to talk with Jen about a report that they released in partnership with the New York Foundation. It's called Streets to State House, and I cannot recommend more highly that everybody listening to this podcast read both parts of the report. It's a two-part report. The first part shares lessons learned from two 2019 statewide campaigns, incredible campaigns led by incredible grassroots organizations that were working in coalition with broader policy and advocacy networks. And the second part of the report, which I actually read first, (laughs) talks about how grassroots organizing as a model 
is not only essential for building campaigns from outside City Hall or Albany, but is also absolutely critical in building a more robust multiracial democracy. And that that theme, that finding, that research, the concrete tools um, and lessons that the report delves into really struck a chord for me. Jen talks really, really wonderfully about the purpose and focus of the report in our conversation. And she does a fantastic job of articulating the, the why and the how behind the research and the report and how they're being used. But I just wanted to share briefly my own reasons for why it felt so important to me to have a conversation about the report on this podcast. So first, I'm always on the lookout for tools that the growth stage organizations that I work with and care so much about can use to build their capacity for true and lasting impact. So when I come across a report that functions like a how-to guide for creating systems change, I get really excited. That's the, the same part of me that used to love field trips to you know, the office supply shop when I was a kid. I, Jen and I joke um, in the conversation about how I'm the, the person that goes to conferences and like collects all the reports and actually reads them. Um, but when they are like this report and they're a real tool, I get particularly excited. And Jen and I talk not only about the actual how-to lessons that the report shares, but also how organizations, whether they use organizing as a primary vehicle for creating change or not, can use the findings in the report as a tool in their own work, which I just love. And that relates to the second theme that she and I touch on, which is near and dear to my heart. True, lasting social change requires looking beyond the walls of our own organizations and missions. It requires that we figure out how to work in partnership and collaboration with other groups, with other people, with other sectors, especially those that use different methodologies. And it requires, through all of this, that we center the lived expertise of people who are most impacted by the problems we're working to solve. So whether you're a direct service provider or an advocacy group or something in between, collaborations and networks must be part of your vision and plan for impact. And one of the things that I love about both parts of this report is that it introduces some concrete ways to plug into systems work, even if that is not your primary model. Finally, Jen and I talk about how long true impact takes. And and this is something that Jen articulates really, really well, how it's incumbent on funders to invest in models that may take longer to actually come to fruition, but that actually create more tectonic shifts in our society, more lasting change. And so hopefully this report and our conversation will continue to seed conversations between grantees and their funders about increasing support for this kind of work. In the end, I always truly love talking with Jen and this conversation is no different. It's a blend of the why and the how and the mindset and the concrete. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hi, Brooke. It's really good to hear you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to hear you and see you and see you. Right. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about our conversation today about your two-part report, Streets to State Statehouse. Um, I reached out because I, I, I really am 
intrigued by and it resonates with me this theme of the power in grassroots organizing um, to reshape our society and our democracy. I I like to joke that um, I sit on the board of organizing organizations because I am a terrible organizer, but believe <laughs> very strongly in the model to bring about um, real change. So I'm just really excited to talk about your report. It explores grassroots organizing from so many different angles. So could we dive in by you just telling all of us, give us an overview of of the report, the two parts, and, and how they came about? Sure. Um, so Streets to State House, um, well, first of all, I just have to say, it's such a lovely thing to hear from someone in the field <laughs> that uh, that a report that we've written is actually inspiring because, you know, how many of us always think like, let me put out a report, right? And then we twiddle our thumbs and wonder who's actually reading it. But yeah. the purpose of, you know, North Star Fund is not a research foundation, mm-hmm. you know, um, we're not a private foundation. Um, New York Foundation, our partner in releasing this report um, and North Star Fund, we have for, you know, almost 50 years together really supported very small emerging organizations in New York City. Um, And we're talking about grassroots groups from communities that are most impacted by injustice. And we have together over these many years funded this work long-term to identify problems. So communities that are closest to injustice to really work together to identify problems problems and to design solutions that can really actually change people's lived experiences, right? That's the core, that is the crux of grassroots organizing. It is to transform people's lives using strategies and tactics that build leadership from the community, the voice, the power, right? To change at every level, right? Your, what's happening in your neighborhood to what's happening in in the case of our report, in the State House. So Streets to State House um, is a two-part series. We released the first report early in 2020. Remember those Halcyon days back? Exactly, the before times. We released the first part in 2020 um, and uh, the most recent report just came out. And the two reports together make the case for why and how funders and donors and really just broad communities we must support hyper-local grassroots organizing as a core strategy for achieving long-term transformative wins. And the first report really focused on the role of hyper-local grassroots organizing groups um, in achieving statewide policy wins in New York State, right? Where our work is here in New York. Um, and so what we looked at in the first report were the role of very, very local small organizations in two seminal campaigns in 2019. One was the, called the Greenlight Campaign, and, and it achieved a win for driver's licenses for undocumented New York residents, um, a campaign that had, had fits and starts for, you know, gosh, 20 years. Yeah, and then the second thing should sorry? not. It just strikes me that some of these things should not require campaigns, right? Like, yes. yes. <laughs> like what yes. were the fits and starts? This is so straightforward in my mind, but that's why that's why this work is so important. Yeah, that's right. You, we, can, we can't underestimate the inertia of political government and the and the powers that be on the other side that, you know, are both 
you know, designed around structural racism, racialized capitalism. I mean, there are, you know, many barriers that are fixed, right, in, in our political system. And, I, and to your point, that goes to the second campaign that we looked at, which was the role of very local organizers in what uh, was known as Housing Justice for All, which was a statewide campaign that expanded for the first time in decades um, rent regulation and tenant protections uh, in New York. Um, when we were complete with that report at the time, we had discussed the need for a companion or a follow-up piece to examine the role of hyper-local grassroots organizing to build electorate power, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, if you, if you think of the first report as thinking about like, how do grassroots organizers move policies, move agendas, move political agendas? The second report is really about how does grassroots organizing actually transform the electorate itself, actually transform democracy and and not just protect democracy, right? Which is something which a lot of us have been talking about since 2017, but really build that multiracial democracy that we all are striving towards. Um, and the second report also came about because um, we had received a lot of feedback from our philanthropic partners that over the over the course of the past several years that there was just funders just had a lot less interest in supporting very local grassroots groups when it came to election and democracy protection work, because the view was that scale is the most important when it comes to democracy. And so, you know, all funders just said, well, I want to see national efforts. I want to see regional efforts. I want to see statewide efforts, right? Why would I fund smaller groups when I, when I can see the impact and the scale of bigger national groups? And I think some of this really, the Maybe the question I think that funders were asking was the wrong question because they would say, well, if we have big problems in the U.S. democracy, like, don't we also need big scaled solutions? And the truth is, is that what we experienced and what we had learned in New York over the course of from 2018 to 2021, which is the course of time that our um, research authors, uh, first Alexa Kasdan and then Seema Shah for the second report, what they found was that um, these sort of traditional vectors of scaled investments have not been successful in really moving a progressive agenda, that, that all of the sort of old ways, if you will, that we thought about what's required to um, promote and expand democracy, like whether it's like media or like coattail effects of sort of statewide, you know, offices or, or litigation and protecting things in the court. These are all just part of strategies now, but they no longer can be the main vectors, right? Because we are living in a time and we always have arguably, right? that very, very big issues are being hotly debated at very, very, very local levels, right? Yeah. You know, right? right? Critical race theory, you That's know, right. at school boards, right? Town councils looking at the rights of immigrants to, to yeah. live in rented apartments, right? So, so it's like these local elections are where neighbors to neighbors are trying to transform minds and build power. Yeah, change happens between people. In communities, yes. um, I was going to ask, and and you started to to touch on this. Why hyperlocal, right? And so you started to um, allude to that when you look at where policies need to change to actually impact people's lives. And of course, neither of us is saying like national policy doesn't matter, but the the changing of hearts and minds, the changing of how communities actually work, the changing of the fabric of our social space in the places we live, I think is how you get to lasting change, right? And then you sort of built from that. Is that why you guys focused on hyperlocal? That's absolutely why. Yeah. I mean, North Star Fund as an institution, you know, we're a public community foundation and 
for the 40 plus years that we have been supporting grassroots organizing, we have been a part of really being the first funder for so many emerging social justice yeah. movements. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's actually a real privilege because that means we're really there providing in, in our um, terms, you know, unrestricted general operating support. You know, we try and just move dollars out and just support groups and campaigns for the long term. But, but having a little bit of the inside look at the very beginning allows us to see that, um, you know, this work is, is highly labor intensive. It's very complicated. It is, as you say, about building relationships and strengthening relationships and frankly, having relationships to begin with, right? Yes. So yes. it really, you really need groups that emerge from the communities that, that are at the front lines that are really thinking about things, right? So we fund, if, if we're going to fund work to, you know, um, attack and reduce mass incarceration, right? So we're going to support groups that are led by individuals and who have been formerly incarcerated, right? Like it is all about really thinking about and understanding who has, has, lived, who has lived experience, who has uh, an analysis about structural power, and who also is willing to really speak that truth to power and take the system to task, right? The truth is, is like, if you and I zoom out, and you know this better than anyone, Brooke, right? It's like literally maybe one or two pennies on the dollar of philanthropic investment goes towards any sort of systems change work, right? Any sort of systems change work, let alone hyper-local grassroots organizing, let alone grassroots organizing led by, you know, um, the black leaders and uh, people of color, like, you know, so we're, so what, so if you think about what was done in, and what is reported in the streets to state house, just from a budget perspective, it represents a fraction of dollars that are circulating through philanthropy and electoral politics. And so that tells you something that tells you that people are really responsive to organizing and, for us as a philanthropic entity, you know, if we could just move more funders to support this work, we think that we could really achieve, right, just like um, exponentially more victories. So that's a, a question that I had reading through the report. And just to go back to your point at the beginning, I love reading reports. <laughs> I, do. I do. I was like the kid that like went to conferences and gathered all the reports um, <laughs> read and, and highlight them. Um, but I and and I am really intrigued by the target sort of audience for this one. Um, is our funders one of the audiences? Are are electeds part of the audience? Who are you hoping will do something with this? Yeah. Gosh, I'm like channeling my communications strategist colleagues when I can tell you. (laughs) Right. No, no, no. Well, I think they're just going to be laughing because one of the challenges I will tell you about writing a report like this is because we wanted to, we wanted all the audiences. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. There's no such thing. So I would say there's, there's three primary audiences for this report. Um, The first is uh, philanthropy. And by philanthropy, I mean philanthropy the big P. So I mean individual donors, I mean institutional foundations, I mean, you know, philanthropic advisors, but I mean anyone who has been looking around over the past several years and 
feeling at a loss of what strategy can move us out of this current democratic crisis, right? Um, and people who feel like I, I understand a little bit of what social justice movements are, but I don't understand how they work or, or what, what are the demands? How do these, how are these movements constructed? So, so it's a, so these reports are a little bit of primers about sort of how campaigns come about, whose leadership, um, feeds into them. And then how is the leadership and the strategy of these, these campaigns and this type of work so different from what we traditionally think about in democracy work? So our first primary audience is for sure people who are moving money towards good work. Right. Because, because we're if trying to understand this, then hopefully we start to see not fractions on the dollar invested right. in these um, in these strategies that are actually working to create tectonic change. Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. Yes. So 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 our, our goal is to demystify the, the world of grassroots organizing, right, to make people understand that scale is not the only answer. You know, mm-hmm. look across the board at a We want a healthy ecosystem, right, of social justice movements. But I would say the second audience is really um, the participatory audience that also created the report with us. Right. The dozens of organizing groups, nonprofits, right, the entire sector that wants funder behavior to change. Right. So one of the purposes of this report is not just to make the case for the work, but to also make the case that how we fund the work is equally important. And so, um, you know, in each of the interviews in both reports and particularly in the second one, right, um, are the organizers we spoke with talked a lot about how important it is for funders to provide long-term support, to provide, um, you know, for C3 dollars, unrestricted support, to also provide C4 support, right, C4 dollars, um, to really kind of um, be partners in this work, but not supervisors, you know, um, and so. For some folks. Yeah. yeah. And so our hope is that this report also offers, um, you know, grantees who are, you know, can reference it and say, here's, you know, here are some ways in which we are seeing trends and calls to action to change philanthropic behaviors that have over these, you know, very long term really damaged the ability of movements to to do what they do best. Yeah. No, I think... Um and I've had a couple of conversations about this more directly on this podcast, but the idea of grantees partnering with and helping to shape the perspectives of their funders in a more active way, I think I'm having way more conversations with the nonprofits that I work with where they're comfortable doing that. Interestingly, coming out of COVID, right? I think going into COVID, the world sort of turned upside down and you had grantees getting calls from funders, more funders than you'd think would, you know, the kinds of funders that are normally like, we have our priorities, this is what we do, but they were calling and saying, we don't know how to have an impact. How do we actually change? Not just how do we affect things that are happening with COVID, but we're starting to understand these deep fissures around race and class and power can't be solved in the way we've been solving them, help us. And so there's been this interesting, and I hope it continues to grow opening of the relationships between grantees and funders. And what I love about what I hear you saying is this is a tool, right? If I am a grantee and I'm having a conversation, either invited or I say to a funder, let's have a conversation. This is something I can use to say, here's some education on how you can have an impact, how you can be a good partner to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, 
my greatest fear is that we, you know, we live in times where there seem to be a disaster every year, right? Disaster pandemic, disaster pandemic, right? I, right. Yeah. It just feels like this is, and, yeah. and, and rather than, um, certainly for the philanthropic community, rather than, sh- uh, rather than, um, getting comfortable with the idea that there's like a certain set of behaviors that we engage in when we're in a disaster, quote unquote, but then we go back to regular business. Yeah. Like we should just recognize that, um, you know, many of the, many of the, uh, short-term reforms and behavior changes that um, that foundations and you know other donors kind of engaged in over COVID should just remain permanent. Like no Agreed. need for yes. reporting, right? No need for extensive applications, right? No need to um, to use these dollars for specific projects. Like use it for the work that you need to, that you need it for at this moment. Because the truth is, is that all of the organizations that we support, right, in in the nonprofit sector are in constant crisis, right? Our our members, our communities are in constant crisis. And so we should always be pivoting and nimble and able to move from one crisis to another. Absolutely. Um, So I'd love to talk a little bit about the how, right? Especially in the second report, you talk about how to leverage grassroots organizing and the expertise of impacted communities to transform our electorate. That is just really, <laughs> I read that in the, in the executive summary. I was like, yes, this. So how, how, how do we do that, right? What are some of the strategies and lessons that you guys learned in your research that you share in the report? Yeah, there's a few areas that, um, that, the, that the report really surfaces. Um, again, focusing on um, New York State in particular, that we saw grassroots organizers coming out of the very campaigns, for example, that we focused on in the 2020 report, how they were impacting the next election cycle. The first is there was a ready-made leadership pool um, for the, so there were candidates, there was staff, there was, um, you know, community leaders, right? So this whole question that, you know, New York, if, if you're a New York pundit or you read kind of New York punditry, right? There'd been like, how come the city council has so few women, you know, like 2018, 2019, right? Record low women, right? So yeah. if you disinvest in a grassroots de- democracy effort, you're not going to have a diverse, right? Yeah. <laughs> Elected, right? Right. So these campaigns, these these coalitions that had built all of these leaders, they were ready to move on to um, to a different sort of leadership and, and community power. The second area that we saw, which I think is particularly valuable and that lots of people are talking about, and and I think we should give pause and think about most critically given the failure of the ballot initiatives in this most recent New York election that were designed to make it easier to vote. Um, is that grassroots groups are really tapping into new bases of voters in very different ways and are building long-term civic engagement, right? So one of the things I think is really important that this that the two reports together show is that we cannot fund things in election cycles. If you, you can't have a funding strategy that is two years by two years by two years by two years, right? It's not sexy, it's not glamorous, it's not, you know, like sound bitey, but you gotta be in it for the long term because the infrastructure takes a long time to to construct, to deepen, and to develop. And so um, groups that, you know, had been building community bases um, for their organizing work for, you know, for structural reforms had had great chances to tap into new bases of voters who then turned out. 
And then the third area that the report um, focuses on, and this is where things get a little bit jargony, but it was looking at how grassroots organizations, um, particularly in New York, are really able to combine both their nonprofit work, so the C3, what we call the 501C3 work, right, with um, using C4 vehicles, right, which are sort of more political basis of fundraising and action taking that allow them to do things like, for example, um, endorse candidates and, um, and kind of actually advance, right, certain, you know, like kind of participate more broadly in the electoral cycle itself. So, um, and, and we saw really increasing sophistication with how small grassroots groups are both working in the C4 space and then also working with each other around the C4 space. Did you see a proliferation of C4s? Like, is that something that you're seeing in your research growing in grassroots communities and organizations? Well, New York, um, you know, you know, New York has a long and tremendous history of, you know, amazing social justice movements. So what we've seen is, um, you know, there are some organizations that have had C4s now going on, you know, more than a decade and they're growing and they're building power and newer organizations or smaller organizations are also potentially using C4 strategies. I wouldn't say it's like an explosion or a proliferation, but it is an intentional and important strategic shift that groups are um, are looking at you know because C4s create a complex administrative you know yeah. infrastructure yeah. but but that they are seeing this as a necessary part not not the core part of work right yeah. um, but a companion and a necessary part of of building sort of electoral power another tool right like yes. that it's a it's a tool and so you know a number of the folks that listen to this podcast are small grassroots social justice organizations that's yeah that's my home base that's my heart uh, north star was one of my one of the first funders of my organization um way back when and yes yeah a long time ago um but you know i think speaking to them thinking expansively about what tools are available to help you achieve your mission and part of what i'm hearing you say is thinking about whether a c4 integration or sort of adding a C4 to your work, um, C4 strategy to your work can just help you achieve your mission better, bring more people into the work, um, target your work um, strategically. I love that. Um, are there things that were hard? Right? I mean, I this for me is like a love fest for the report and for the findings. Um, and I know that social justice work and organizing work are hard. And I'm wondering if there were any potential roadblocks that you guys unearthed as you were exploring these strategies for transforming, particularly sure. in the second report, the electoral work. Sure. It's all hard. I think, you know, it's like... We were very cautious that, um, first of all, the report was conducted by an independent researcher. So this is not North Star Fund and New York Foundations. Like, this is what we think, right? Um, it's the voice. Alexa is fantastic. Alexa is <laughs> she's just a fantastic, phenomenal researcher. Yes. And then the author of the second report was Seema Shah. Um, and so I, but I, I think what's, what was hard What's hard is that we did, we, I don't want this report to go into the public ether and sort of be viewed as, um, 
grassroots groups should be doing voter registration. Like, this is great. Like, this is... This They're reductionist. Is right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, because the truth is, is that... And it's a really complex, nuanced, strategic decision to engage in power building within the electoral system. Mm-hmm. When you are an organizing entity whose goal is to systemically transform the system itself. Mm-hmm. So I think what comes across in the report um, from the organizers we spoke with is this very struggle, right? That it's not a, it's and it's not necessarily a compromise per se, right? It is what um, you just mentioned, Brooke, right? It is about understanding what's in our toolbox, mm-hmm. um, understanding what our member leaders are seeking and what strategies can be matched at what particular time. Mm-hmm. And what the problems are or what the challenges are, right, is the proof is in the political pudding, right? Um, you know, when when there is greater grassroots participation and leadership in these electoral processes, we see more transformative policy changes, right? And we talk a little bit about that in the report, right? We see and we hope to experience a different sort of mutual accountability um, in the relationships, right? In in what could eventually and hopefully be some forms of actual co-governance, right? Instead of this idea that like once you're elected, you kind of like go off and you do your thing, right? You're done. I'll see you in two years. Exactly. I'm in. Now I got now I got a lot of interests at my door, you know. And and I think the other challenge is to really hold the, this question of accountability around transparency and inclusion in the long term. So I don't know, maybe there'll be a streets to state house three, you know, final word where did it work? You know, I don't know. We'll see. Right? Like, we have to wait like 30 years. To I see. Know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> but I think that's, I think what you, what you're saying is that like, yes, it's like the whole process itself is the problem is, is the challenge, right? we, we are looking to actually build real power in a system that does not want this power to be built. Mm-hmm. And our our entry point for these reports is is just that very narrow narrow question mm-hmm. of who's giving money to support this work and why. So we're just really looking at that sort of philanthropic mm-hmm. question, right? And we're just basically making the case that we give so little money towards this crucial work yeah. for goodness sake, like let's give more. <laughs> Do you feel like there is a role for non-organizing, non-grassroots organizing groups in this vision of transforming the electorate in partnership with the grassroots organizing groups as allies, as partners, I mean, definitely, you know, as funders and philanthropic, as philanthropic funders. Um, But I know there's so many organizations that are mission aligned, that are deeply invested in transforming our systems and our government and our democracy, and aren't organizing groups. Like, that's not the model that they have expertise in or that they can use. Um, Is there a way in that continues to center, right? Because I think what I don't want is for the question to be interpreted as like, this is so amazing. What can these other non-grassroots, right? Like, because I think that often happens, you know, that we start talking about communities as experts and, you know, impacted communities as experts. And people are like, that's so fantastic. We can do a focus group. And then we're going to go over here and do the real work. Yeah, Um, That's not what I'm saying. But I do, 
think there's power in collaboration where the right people are centered. Did that come up? I know that's not the focus of the report, but what are your sure. thoughts based on what you saw in the report on you know potential allies there? Um, well, you know, first of all, I think like you and I both together have a real combined diverse experience in the nonprofit sector, right? And so like in many ways, when you're asking me this question, I'm thinking, well, Brooke, you and I have both worked in a lot of different sides of coalitions and spaces, right? And we know it can be done and it must be done. So so I'm just coming from that perspective. I would say, yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, I used to run a legal services (laughs) agency, right? Right. And if you look at the history of a lot of the larger nonprofits, they were all started as organizing groups, right? They were all started to organize around eradicating poverty, for example, right? But you get government money or you get, you know, you get you get federal government money, then all of a sudden you got you get restrictions on what you can do, you can't lobby, you can't do and then slowly the window of that work narrows. And so there's a couple things that I think are absolutely essential and and I and we see happening in the New York ecosystem to wonderful effects. The first is um you know larger nonprofits, all types of nonprofits like they work and touch on lives of thousands of people with you know, with incredible lived experience every day. So if you're providing services or you're working with someone on one particular issue, nothing is stopping you from from introducing your client community to a member-led organization, right? Nothing is stopping you from encouraging and, you know, like how many service organizations have a referral list for housing subsidy providers, for shelter providers, but how many have a referral list for organizing groups where... Clients could become leaders, right? Um, Clients could become partners. So I think there's just one, there's just, that's one way, right? A people to people sort of scenario. But the second is thinking about the behavior of, in the larger system, the behavior of the larger organizations in these larger struggles for justice. Like who's really leading? And our first report and our second report really show that hyper-local grassroots organizing groups, right, tiny but mighty, have the base and a mass mobilized base, and they should be at the leadership table. They should be at the leadership table as the strategists. They should be at the leadership table as the closers, right? They're not just bodies to bring on a bus to a protest, right? What they do is they create the conditions by which there is accountability and then actual change. And so, um, so I, you know, and, and we saw that in, in many coalitions, right? That there's, there's always been a powerful grassroots voice, um, in New York, but at, you know, different levels of access and accountability. So I think those are just, a, that's like a couple ways that I think. Um, and of course, my the third one is that many, many, many nonprofits are, and even in North Star Fund supports this work as well. Like they are rethinking they are rethinking how their years of not engaging in this sort of structural organizing is working at cross purposes to their own mission. And so you have a lot of organizing groups that are sprung on organizing departments, right. That are sprung out of community development corporations or housing service organizations, et cetera. And I would really encourage um, nonprofits to not shy away from that, that we need to really rebuild the sector in a different way. I just got chills. I just really love that, especially what you were saying about, um, you know, the people in these communities not being just people on a bus to go up to Albany for, you know, a lobbying meeting or conversation. Um, and I think, I think 
particularly that second point you made about organizations rethinking rethinking how they work and where my mind went rethinking how they take up space right in the same way that on an individual level people are being pushed to think how am i taking up space in this room how am i sharing leadership how am i sharing power how am i rethinking the implications of my privilege i think institutions have to do that also is what absolutely yeah i think that's wonderful um so is there any last sort of wisdom or any last pieces of advice for people and groups who want to use these reports as tools. We've talked about in funding conversations. We've talked even about, you know, I think organizations should read this to begin to think about how do we rethink our behavior? How do we rethink our relationship to this work? Is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with um, about, about the reports, the why, the how? <laughs> I mean, in, in my dream, you know, yeah. um, in my dream that that we that these reports go to the staff, clients, members of all organizations, right? The reports are a snapshot of ambitious possibility, right? It is about saying, like, if you actually want to change the structural conditions around which we are all running and scurrying and trying to do survival kind of, you know, support, right? Um, then we need only look at ourselves. And, and, and find the power within and then build that power. Um, and it's not like, you know, the, the reports, I, I think, are a beautiful sausage factory because they show that, you know, movements that are created around the integrity and the leadership of, of New Yorkers who are, you know, who are truly closest to injustices, um, that, that they create beautiful outcomes, um, right? So to steal some of these philanthropic kind of terms and funder terms, right? Or what's the impact and the outcome, right? I mean, really at the end of the day, that was really the reason why we did these reports because everyone was always asking us, and you know, go to any philanthropic conference, we were like, well, how do you measure the impact and the outcome of your work? And I'm like, we measure it by looking at how movements over time are actually able to change the structural conditions of oppression, right? Yeah, and I'm like, oh, well, well, give that to me in numbers, right? So, right. so like, we, all right, you know what? Really <laughs> like, but really, what's the quote-unquote impact? Yes, you know? yes, yeah. exactly. So, this report is an answer to that. It is an answer, and it's a little bit of a of a idea generation. Like, we can do it. Um, we can do it. Regular people can do it, and regular people must do it. And um, and organizing itself is a discipline, right? It's not. It's you know we we particularly called it um, streets to state house because there is a pathway there. It's an intentional strategy and it's a thoughtful one. Um, so yeah, I I I I I feel like what what we're trying to sort of tell the world is people are out there protesting on the streets, but there are significant agendas. Um, there are, you know, hotly contested debates. There are complicated solutions, um, you know, all beneath what you see on the streets. And it's really important for us to recognize that, that and to amplify that leadership. Thank you so much, Jen. This is a great conversation. I'm really excited. Where can people find links to the report? Sure. Uh, Northstarfund.org. Um, and if you Google Streets to State House North Star Fund, it comes up. Um, and we're really happy to talk to folks. Um, we've done a, some, a couple kind of like mini town halls or training sessions with staffs of foundations or nonprofit sector kind of um, meetings just to talk about this work and to get folks um, engaged in it. And we're really happy to have more conversations like this. 
Thank you, Brooke. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Thank you for joining me this week on this episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you think this podcast and the guests and the conversations could benefit another leader in your life, I'd love if you would share with your friends. I will wrap up by sharing two free resources that you might find interesting or helpful. First, I've created a free four-part email video training series specifically for small six-figure nonprofits that want to scale. It walks through four foundational shifts that leaders need to make in how they think about finances, time, their own mindset, and their very core growth strategy in order to really take their organizations to the next level. The link to the free trainings is richiebabbage.com backslash four critical shifts to scale. And it's the number four. Second, and lastly, if you'd like more leadership resources and strategies in your life, I encourage you to sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership Forward 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. You can sign up at richiebabbage.com backslash leadership forward 321. That's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.